This is 15-Minute History, a podcast for educators, students, and history buffs featuring the minds and talents of the University of Texas at Austin. 15-Minute History is a partnership of Not Even Past and Hemispheres in the College of Liberal Arts at UT Austin. Hi, I'm Joan Neuberger, editor of Not Even Past, and today we're here with Seth Garfield. Hi, Seth. Hello. (laughs) Seth is a a professor in the History Department, and he specializes in Latin American history, uh, particularly Brazilian history. And he's just written a new book about the rubber industry in Brazil during World War II that's called In Search of the Amazon, Brazil, the United States, and the Nature of a Region. So, Seth, let's start with a a question that may um, surprise people. Why was the rubber industry in the remote Amazon interesting to people in the United States during World War II? So at the time of World War II, the United States was a have-not nation when it came to rubber. It depended on imports predominantly from Southeast Asia. Over 98% of its rubber came from this region. There was no synthetic rubber industry in the United States. So when the Japanese invaded the Malayan uh, Peninsula and the Netherlands East Indies, the United States lost access to 92% of its rubber supply. So this generated a major crisis in the United States. And they began to look for alternatives. Um, And because of the Amazon's large number of rubber trees, that was seen as a good source. Mm So um, there was a war going on in the world, but this was also a special period in Brazilian history. Can you um, tell us a little about the Estado Novo and what, um, what people hoped for that? So the Estado Novo was the dictatorship led by Getulio Vargas. Um, Vargas came to power in 30, and in 1937 he seized um, dictatorial control of the country. It's a very nationalistic time in Brazil. Um, and Vargas was committed to not only economic nationalism, but also frontier development. So he upheld the Amazon as a, the future of the nation, as a, as a source of um, natural resources, as a frontier to be settled and conquered by Brazilians. Um, let me interrupt you for a second. What do you mean by economic nationalism? So in Latin America in the 1930s, many um, governments embraced... Um, a form of economic development, import substitution, industrialization, because their economies had been so um, unsettled by the uh, Great Depression, and they looked mm-hmm. to, to um, producing domestically industrial goods that they had imported um, prior to the crisis. And for the automobile sector and for the military in Brazil, the Amazon's resources were very important. Mm-hmm. So, so what was Vargas trying to do in the Amazon? What were his goals? Well, it was a very ambitious project. He wanted to um, promote and to subsidize migration because one of the problems that um, policymakers traditionally um, claimed bedeviled the Amazon was the lack of abundant work, an abundant workforce. Mm-hmm. So it was subsidizing migration. It was also sanitizing the region because it was a region that was plagued by numerous um, epidemics and public health problems. So there was an attempt to use public health um, and um, sanitation projects to uh, make the region more salubrious. And there was also an attempt to um, uh, grow uh, blight-free rubber trees in the Amazon to compete with the Asian rubber trees that were grown on plantations. Mm -hmm. So um, there was a, a, a big project to move people into the region but there were people living there already, right? Correct. So <laughs> what did they do with them? Well, that's a very interesting question. The people in the Amazon, um, the Amazonian native population, which was comprised of 
predominantly non-indigenous groups, although there was a large indigenous population as well, um, were disparaged by government officials as being lazy, as not being um, am ambitious or industrious enough to affect the transformation of the region. So um, it's not that there was a lack of workers in the region, technically there was a lack of willing workers to carry out the type of regimented um, labor that the government officials and bosses were looking for. So they looked to populations from outside the region, particularly the northeast of Brazil, who were celebrated as more industrious, um, <clears throat> more ambitious, and could bring about the transformation of the region. Mm -hmm. So um, from the government's point of view, this was seen as a, a, a positive project, a modernizing project, right? Yes. Um, but that was controversial, wasn't it? Well, it was seen as a very nationalistic project. And what I argue in the book is that Vargas is not the first one to cast the Amazon as sort of um, a, an El Dorado or a future, you know, a, a, a region that brimming with promise. But he certainly was intent upon dispelling the idea of the Amazon as a green hell, as a region without a future, as a region condemned to backwardness. Mm -hmm. And part of his um, political project was very much um, raising support and consciousness and pride in the Amazon among the rest of the Brazilian population, the majority of which, of course, lives outside the Amazon region. Mm -hmm. um, and were, were they successful? Well, I argue in a sense they were, um, because the Amazon, I think, today in Brazil is seen by those outside the region um, in com complex ways. I think um, there is a sense of pride in the Amazon's bounty and the size of the region and its potential and its future, which I argue was generated in part this type of cultural pride by and under the Vargas regime. Mm -hmm. Although there still remain those in the more developed regions that see it as a dangerous, you know, snake-infested, malaria-ridden region that they would never visit if you paid them to go there. <laughs> <laughs> and okay, so back to World War II, what did um, the U.S., how did the U.S. hunger for rubber affect um, national economic policies there? In the United States? Where in, in Brazil. So the U.S. really needed a new source of Correct. rubber. How did that influence what was going on there? I see. Well, in general, Brazil was a key wartime ally of the United States. So in 1942, it actually, in um, August of 1942, Vargas declares war on um, Germany and Italy. And Brazil is the only Latin American country to send troops to fight in World War II. Um, so, in general, Brazil was the darling of um, U.S. economic and military aid during the war, and it fares quite well in terms of its macroeconomic you know, performance. The Amazon, in particular, is also the beneficiary of millions of dollars in government, U.S. government aid and technology transfers. So, in, for 2000, it would be the equivalent of over $110 million that were invested by the government. So, this is, a, for a huge region, you know, not a tremendous amount of money, although a significant amount, given that it was traditionally a very poor uh, region and chronically lacking in capital and technology. Mm -hmm. So, um, uh, when, when, so what happens after the war then? What kinds of the, the development of the rubber industry during the war creates new conditions for afterwards? What, what happens afterwards? Yeah, that's an interesting question. I argue that the U.S., 
um, develops a synthetic rubber industry during the war. So the geopolitical importance that had driven um, U.S. policymakers to the Amazon in sort of a frenzied pursuit of um, raw or natural rubber is no longer as important. So it's almost um, as if the Amazon lacks the urgency for U.S. officials, and they do withdraw um, the support, economic and um, technological, that had been offered. But for Brazil, um, the Brazilian government retains the subsidies that uh, rubber growers had received during the war, and this whole nationalistic project that Vargas had developed is certainly sustained so that the Amazon is under the Brazilian constitution of 1946, um, it's earmarked or to receive a certain percentage of national revenues. And this developmental project and regional planning um, is sustained for the course of the, po the post-war period. Mm -hmm. So when does it become, or does it become, um, a region where the, uh, uh, where the rainforest is seen as something to be protected rather than exploited? So I'd see, I, I see that as taking place in the 1970s and 80s and onward. Um, there is a significant amount of deforestation that takes place in the post-war period, some 12% by the 1980s, somewhat higher at this point. So there is a real change that's taking place in the region, but also aside from the physical change um, and the acceleration of deforestation, there's the emergence of the environmental movement mm -hmm. in throughout the world. I mean, initially in the North Atlantic uh, countries, but uh, by the 1980s in Brazil as well. And this brings about a new valorization, a new um, importance, I think, for the Amazon as a source of biodiversity, as a buffer against global warming. And as a result, the image of the Amazon uh, changes somewhat. It's not that there's still not a developmentalist impulse and many projects to transform the Amazon and to extract its resources for economic development and corporate enrichment, but there's a, a competing or countervailing project which obviously has made the, um, the politics or the eco-politics of the region quite contentious. Mm -hmm. Now, you did, um, you did research all over Brazil for this book, right? Including in some pretty remote places. So can you talk a little bit about some of the um, places where you went to do research? Sure. And were there snakes in the archives? <laughs> <laughs> well, much to my surprise, um, I uh, um, found that the archives in the Amazon um, were a mixed bag. So some were poorly organized, as might be expected in a region that's poor or poorer than the more developed regions of Brazil. But um, in the city of Porto Velho, which is the capital of the state of Rondonia, I did research at a judicial archive, and it was one of the best organized archives <laughs> I'd ever seen in my life. With a and family. how big is the town? I think about 400,000 now. So there were a, a wonderful archivist. Everything was you know, on the database. I was able to find the material very quickly. So that was a very wonderful experience. Mm -hmm. And I found some excellent um, material there about the use of the courts by the rubber tappers and the use of the um, new labor legislation that had been enacted during the war mm -hmm. um, that they brought to defend themselves against their bosses. Um, I, personally, I think one of the most interesting experiences was when I visited the extractive reserve where um, Chico Mendes, the great labor leader and environmentalist, 
who was assassinated in 1988, had carried out his struggles against one of the ranches uh, in the Amazon. And there I was able to tap rubber myself, and I was quite bad at it. So, <laughs> so that was... Um, so you learned how hard it is. I learned how hard it is. And it was also amazing to me um, in speaking with the residents to see how much they knew about the flora and the Amazon and how the different uses that, um, that they were able to... Um, apply to the, to the uh, floor in the Amazon, which was really eye-opening. Mm -hmm. yeah. Great. Um, well, it sounds like really interesting research and um, an amazing place to visit. So thank you very much. Thank you very much. You can find a transcript of this episode, along with supplemental documents, suggestions for further reading, and correlations to this Texas and National Educational Standards for History and Geography on our website, blogs.utexas.edu backslash 15-Minute History. That's the numerals 1-5-Minute History. You can also find a link to suggest topics for upcoming episodes. The University of Texas at Austin is a free speech campus. Opinions and viewpoints expressed in episodes of 15-Minute History do not represent the official position of the University of Texas or of any of its colleges or departments. Thanks for listening. We'll see you next time.